0: Welcome, everyone. This is Carlos from SeedCamp. I'm really excited to have a very good personal friend of mine here, who's also a very distinguished VC here in the European community with a very great background that we're going to explore shortly. His name is Sean Seaton Rogers. He's with Profounders Capital, and we'll learn a little bit more about Profounders towards the end of this podcast. But first, as you all know, I want to start off with the man behind the myth. And uh, Sean and I actually have a very long history, and I'll get into that a little bit into the podcast. But I know that you went to Rice. Do you want to share a little bit about what you did at Rice, what you studied, and what you did right afterwards?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, Carlos, uh, really good to be here. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, as they would say on, uh, in talk radio in the U.S., so happy to be here, uh, kind of sharing a little bit about myself and ProFounders. Um, yeah, to take you back to when I had hair, um, because I don't <laughs> have not had hair for a long time, actually, but um, back when I did have a full head of hair, I was in, in college and uh, was actually an engineer there, so studied mechanical engineering. Uh, From my perspective, it was great because um, I always believed that having a strong mathematical programming base was a good way to be able to do whatever you wanted to do. So I did that. Uh, I was only a practicing engineer for a very short period of time. I worked on an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico um, with what is now part of British Petroleum. We did not cause a big hole in the earth that uh, caused massive environmental damage when I was there. So that's. uh, That was right around
0: that time, wasn't it?
1: No, 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 no. So we uh, we survived that, but actually, then um, uh, wanted to move into the business world, and so left from there to go into consulting to get an introductory to what the heck happens in businesses, and uh, it was a great kind of place to learn at first. So Mm -hmm. which consulting firm was that? So I was with Bain and Company. And actually, it was my first introduction to Europe as well. So I was in the US and uh, they needed some help on a project in London back Mm -hmm. in 1999. So I came, I think it was from March until October and looking back, it was apparently one of the warmest uh, summers ever, the sunniest summers ever. So I spent eight, nine, ten months in London and uh, it was sunshine every day and I thought to myself, my God, London is fantastic, why do people complain about the weather at all? I really got to figure out when I can get back, um, went back to the U S then came over eventually in 2005.
0: Yeah. Okay. So like if we go back to the, the Bain days and which were you based in, which office were you mostly in? I was in Texas. In the in Texas Dallas. office. Yeah, indeed. So when we met, we were in, you were in Boston at Commonwealth. Um, When when did you make the
1: transition from Bain to to Commonwealth? So I moved out to Boston and we did meet there uh, because my girlfriend, who is now my wife, was in graduate school and I didn't like being in a different city. And so, looked at different options. This was actually 1990, late 99. So, my God, the the first bubble. And things were kind of booming in the startup world. And I looked at opportunities with uh, with tech startups back then. Um, and, uh, And also ran across this industry called venture capital. Um, and was immediately attracted to it because I loved um, relatively early-stage companies. I also have the attention span of a five-year-old, and so the idea of working with lots of companies all at the same time um, really appealed to me and had the opportunity to join an early-stage venture fund in the Boston area back then. Uh, The first six months were fantastic, kind of steak dinners to celebrate an IPO here, exit there acquired by Cisco, $500 all that kind of stuff. And then... uh, it came crashing down, and the next three years that I spent with the team in Boston was um, was actually learning about what it takes to really build companies. Because um, guess what happens? What do they say when the uh, the tide goes out? You discover who's swimming naked. Yeah, <clears throat> and that's kinda, that's kind of what happened. Um, a lot of companies didn't make it. Uh, we had to work really hard with others to to get them financed, to um, you know restructure, to keep them alive, and uh, end up being involved with some actually some good companies in the end, but it took a, took a long time. I discovered that company building, company creation is a long, hard process. and takes many, many years. Mm. You know, sometimes
0: they say that the lessons you learn earlier in life, and I know this has been the case for myself as well, that the earlier lessons you learn are some of the most important ones. During that period of time post bubble pop, where you dealt with a lot of these issues that then later generated these companies yeah. value. What were the first few lessons that you learned that you were like, crap, I've, I wish I hadn't done that if it was a mistake you made, or alternatively, stuff you're like, you know, this has been a motto for me from thereafter.
1: So I think I think the first one is that great companies uh, don't have necessarily, don't have a right to survive. Even they have to work really hard. And this was the time when you look at it and you say, we've got X amount of cash, uh, we're burning Y per month. Uh, do the math and figure out uh, how long we've got, and we need to extend it in some way uh, and and be able to, to get through that those tough times, and so I learned a lot about um, the brutal decisions that CEOs have to make, mm. um, and the importance of cash preservation, of proving out milestones, to be able to raise more money, um, just how you how you craft a story around a business as well. Because, like I said, not every business has the right to survive, even if it's good business. It takes a lot of um, a lot of the ecosystem around it to be able to survive as well.
0: Yeah, and we were talking a little bit earlier about the role of the CEO and how much time it needs to be spending fundraising and, and the storytelling component. You wanna elaborate on that?
1: Sure, I mean, I, I think I learned this a lot back then and it's something I still preach to my companies now, which is um, great CEOs, and I can see this through our portfolio and, and other, uh, other companies as well. It's um, CEOs are constantly raising money. Uh, there's always another round of financing for the kinds of businesses that we collectively, Seedcamp, Pro Founders, other early stage venture funds invest in. If you're doing well, you need more money to, to continue to grow and expand and, and hire more people. If you're not doing well, you need more money, you need more time to create the story. And so there's always fundraising. And so from my perspective, um, fundraising is about instilling confidence and painting a beautiful story for potential investors. And that story has a few different components to it, right? Um, Number one is you've got to convince them that you're a team to back, you're the right individual that can grow this business. You You need to convince them that the money they give you will be well spent. And that involves telling them the history of the company, how you got there, and how you efficiently allocated capital in the past to achieve what you got. But then more importantly, how you can give them confidence that the money they give you will be well spent and can achieve clear milestones. And I, and I think that clarity of purpose, clarity of story, um, and the ability to say, look what I did with this in the past, and be able to project forward, uh, is hugely important. And, and there is an art to it, it's not a science, it is an art, it is a craft to be able to um, to paint that clear, beautiful picture for potential mm-hmm. investors.
0: Excellent, so that was part of what, what you lived through at Commonwealth, and you know, it was definitely a very difficult time I remember that and for the, for those that are listening uh, a little bit of the personal side of the story this is right roughly around the time that I was first introduced to venture capital uh, Sean and I met uh, at, doing Taekwondo ironically in Boston and one of the great conversations that I had which really changed my my career and I have to thank you Sean for this was introducing me to this idea of venture capital and uh, it, it was from there on that that uh, a I obviously stayed in touch with Sean but be uh, also changed the way that I was thinking about entering into venture. But right after Boston, you know, I, I I headed off to New York and then you stayed at Commonwealth for a while before you came over to London. Walk us through what happened there. So how long, what, was there anything in between or, or did you go straight from Commonwealth to, to which benchmark London?
1: So I will answer that, but first I have to interject just a little bit. So Carlos is uh, underselling himself like usual. So we actually did meet in Taekwondo where he was kicking my bum, as you would say, in Europe. <laughs> On a, on a regular basis, the man is lethal um, and continues to be, so behind the nice demeanor there is a uh, deadly assassin, honestly. <laughs> he was uh, spectacular and had many black belts and, and the like, so, uh, uh, but actually, uh, no, I did uh, I took a two-year uh, sabbatical uh, to go to business school in the U.S., so That's I, right. yeah, I, yeah. I ducked out to, uh, to Wharton, the Wharton School Business in Philadelphia and uh, went from earning a good salary to paying them a fortune and uh, and not earning any money. But um, it was a great experience. It allowed me to kind of formalize my business training, business education. I met some great people who were lifelong friends. And, um, you know, I don't know if it was an ROI-positive decision, but uh, it was a decision I would make again every single day. And uh, You know, it's funny because
0: you, you had the chance to, to be a VC before, then you did an MBA, and then BC, be a VC afterwards. I was an engineer, did an MBA, yeah. taught me a lot of things I would have never been exposed to as an engineer. Did you find that the MBA was, was like – did it like – were there moments during your courses where you're like,
1: fuck, I wish I had known that? Uh, I would say – so there's all different sorts that go get, to, get, to go get an MBA. So the the, the the requirements, the core requirements of an MBA, I think I probably had a good grounding in already because I've been a consultant. Um, and they do a very good job of training people up at the, um, the Bain, BCG, McKinsey's mm. of the world. Um, what, what I really loved were the elective classes I could take where I could explore things that I had a personal interest in. And so my favorite class that I took was on game theory. Um, right. And I still continue to this day to read a lot of books on game theory. I really love um, the analytical approach to uh, to it. And actually I've seen quite a few different times where it actually does, it, it can be applied to the startup world, right, um, about um, how you need to position yourself versus competitors, mm-hmm. what is your core strength, Um, even the judo kind of stuff to leverage other people's, um, strengths and weaknesses against them, their Mm. weight against them. And Mm. so, um, so, so I learned, I learned, I enjoyed it and I actually learned quite a bit as well.
0: Mm. And so when you graduated, you must've been like, well, okay, I can go back into venture or I can maybe take an operational role in a startup and, you know, and, as we know, you eventually chose to move to London, but that must have been a difficult decision. Why did you ultimately decide to go back into venture?
1: So for me, I did not want to be in Europe. Uh, I, I was, and I think I've been proven correct, that that there's huge opportunity in the tech world in Europe, right? And in 2005, when I moved over here, it was still quite nascent, I think. Um, but I, I did want to be in Europe. I saw a huge, untapped, like I said, huge untapped potential broadly in technology. And I looked at a lot of operational roles and venture capital roles as well, Um, and uh, had a few different potential paths to follow, but um, had the opportunity to join uh, what is now Baldwin Capital, but at the time was Benchmark Capital Europe. So the European team, which was part of the um, kind of global Benchmark Capital um, kind of network. And uh, it was just a great set of people, a great opportunity, and so I jumped at it. Uh, I didn't didn't actually realize at the time how long I would end up being in Europe. I, I thought it was... Would be would be fun. I suspected no more than five years at the time. Um, mm. It might even have been as short as one to two years, but uh, you never know uh, how those small decisions in life lead to longer term um, kind of paths that you end up on. And so, so it's now been ten years here. Yeah, indeed.
0: Huh. <laughs> when you when you went through um, those early days at Benchmark, I remember a couple of things. I remember firstly that you were, if not the first, maybe one of the very few associates that they were bringing on. And it was something that I hadn't done before. I remember that. But I also remember that, and I can remember the book E-Boys came out before or after you had joined. But I remember that Benchmark was known in the U.S. for a lot of things that they were doing very differently. And just curious how much the sort of philosophy that is represented in the book about Benchmark mapped over into Europe. And how much of it didn't map?
1: So I will go on record on this podcast saying Benchmark Capital uh, is the best venture firm in the world, mm-hmm. the, 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 and then the U.S. guys um, and what they've accomplished over now what is twenty years as being a venture capital fund. It's uh, it's unparalleled continued success, uh, and I think there are a few things I learned about the right way to operate a venture fund, but more importantly, how to interact with entrepreneurs. Right, so they always had a very lean operational model. It was always a group of partners only, equal part equal partnership, um, of very high caliber people that were not um, high ego in any way, shape, or form, and very much uh, believed they were in the service business, the service to entrepreneurs. And that is the way they operated every single component of the business. It was about finding great entrepreneurs, convincing them that that team could be incredibly helpful on that journey the founder was about to embark on, um, and then being incredibly successful at actually at, and then delivering on that and being incredibly s- successful because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Benchmark, um, has been spectacular at that. Um, um, just, just, you know, whether it's eBay through to Uber, mm. uh, if you, if you span the 20 years, they've been phenomenal.
0: Mm. So how did that move <coughs> over to Europe? Did, did, did you find that they yeah. needed to find new staff for Europe and, or any of them come over? Yeah. How did that get managed so that, that, that culture yeah. Would remain?
1: Yeah. So, so obviously Europe is, is a little different beast because it is a, a lot of different markets as well. Right. So it is not San Francisco at that time, actually it was just, it was, um, the valley, because San Francisco as a town wasn't really a big startup community. Um, so Europe is more disparate; involves more travel, more feet on the street. So I think mean, that's that's the difference that the model had to have here. But you know, what I took away from it, and I still try to deliver on every day, is venture is a service business. Yeah. Our job is to help founders. Now, different firms help founders in different ways. So you have to figure out the right way, and, and you have to understand what you want to represent mm-hmm. to founders. Uh, but it is uh, that's what it's about.
0: Mm. One of the things that you mentioned about Benchmark's uh, model and culture was around not having egos. And many founders would say that VCs have tons of egos. What were the mechanisms that that team went about making sure that nobody's ego got out of control? Because to some extent, it isn't just about one point in time when you start a firm. And we know a lot of firms that have gone online in the last year with new partnerships, and they promise a lot to founders. What What is it that you would, A, tell a founder, to look out for in a potentially uh, egotistical VC, but that is maybe not so obvious when they're having the first honeymoon period meetings? And B, what is it that you see successful VCs do to keep that that sort of honesty to the service capital model?
1: So I would say as as a note of warning to founders, um, does the the person of the fund speak in terms of I or we? And I think that can be a clear indication of, of how they operate, right? So I think the uh, how Benchmark US uh, Benchmark was able to do it um, was uh, you know the kind of people they hired, right? So so it all comes down for every company it's about hiring the right people, but then managing people as well. And they were not above uh, you, you saw people leave the fund. I mean, new people come on, new people people leave all the time. It was managed in a very rigorous manner to make sure that the core ethos remained constant. Um, and this is the same as company culture that that you guys all have to deal with as well, right? If there's anyone that's not part of the uh, mm. not pulling, you know, as part of the, sh- in the same direction on the sh- on the ship, um, then the person wasn't there mm. for a long time. Mm. So, just the way it happened.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a that's a good tip anyway for for founders to to sort of listen to how somebody's talking, and then maybe that's a good litmus test. Now, I know that at Benchmark and then subsequently Ballerton, um you. Eventually met the Birches. and maybe you can tell us the story about that
1: company. Yes, so and I was how um, it
0: started, and then you know what eventually came.
1: So I was very fortunate to have uh, to work closely with Michael and Zoshi Birch, who were the founders of a now small company, I suppose, called Bebo. Uh, at the time, back in two thousand and six, I suppose they were a rocket ship of a social network. And this is back in the very early days mm. of social networking. And um, especially in the youth segment, they were absolutely dominant. I had the fortune um, to, to meet them at an event, uh, be impressed by, by Michael, the product guy. Um, and, uh, and we were able to, at, at Benchmark, invest in their business and support them on, on that journey. And uh, the company, as you know, Carlos, was bought by AOL in and. Eight early two thousand eight, I would suppose for eight hundred and fifty million dollars. And uh, you know, longer term, Facebook won the social networking war. I think we we've all seen that, whether it's MySpace or others. Uh, But at the time, Bebo was a very viable competitor for that crown. They had close to seventy five million users, adding millions a month, um, and and a really nice product. And and um, you know, I think it's uh, it's unfortunate the acquisition probably didn't go as planned. Mm -hmm. I think, Uh, but. it was, uh, it was a great company. It, was, it had real revenues even at the time. Was was profitable. and uh,
0: So when you invested, they had revenues?
1: Yeah, very early revenues okay. when we did invest. Uh, uh, we, do you remember how many users they had when you invested? 15 to 20 million. Okay, so they were already coming. yeah Yeah, it was, it was a $15 million round, I think, or so, the very first round. There. Well, one of the things the that, round.
0: One of the things that we've been talking about internally is kind of what are impressive week-on-week growth rates and you know early early day um, companies are ranging anywhere between 5 to 12%. Uh, yeah. Week on week growth is super impressive at 12 I think that was Facebook at one point. What what um, what kind of numbers have you found impressive and what, what was Bebo's if you remember?
1: Uh, so I don't remember. I, I could probably go pull out the old uh, spreadsheet and take a look mm-hmm. from the diligence process. Um, you know, from, from my perspective... Um, I think sometimes people are – listen, I'm very fi- metrics fixated mm. as well. And and I love to see growth. Um, I can't really define it though. And I suppose it's um, it's like the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in a very famous ruling uh, where they were trying to define pornography. And the one chief justice wrote, um, I don't know how to describe it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. Um, and that's the way I feel about early stage growth at companies or, mm. or early growth numbers. It's um, – because it, a lot of times it depends on the industry you're in, uh, the type of customer segment, right? If there's a SaaS company, they ain't growing at 12% a week. It's, it's impossible, yeah. right? So, um, But you know it when you see it. You, you'll meet a team, you'll look at some of the numbers, and you'll be bolder. Mm. You'll say, wow, that is, uh, there's something happening here. Mm. Like pornography. Mm-hmm. Wow, there is something happening here.
0: Mm. If you had to describe for the founders that are listening to this, the difference between the investing stage that Abibo, 15 million users, would have been today, Um, would you have described that more of like a a super late stage or a quasi sort of later stage Series A and now Profounders is looking at it far earlier because it seems to me like you invested in in a company that was already a rocket ship as opposed to companies that maybe a lot of people are... are
1: You know what's interesting, So I I think Facebook and and a lot of the other social networks were a, a forerunner to the investing climate we see now where you've seen kind of a bifurcation of investment strategy and you either invest very early um, before kind of hockey stick growth or before tipping point or you and you you invest early you absorb a huge amount of risk um, and a commensurate lower valuation or you invest post momentum post pivot point post hockey stick and you're willing to pay up and write larger tickets into those kind of companies and i think uh, that's definitely what in the Bebo case it was, right? It was a uh, it was a bigger round, but the company deserved it at mm-hmm. the time and had been, had kind of skipped over the early stage round. The, the founders were uh, able to support it through the very early days. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of the advents of the lean operating model. It only had probably fifteen people when we invested. They mm-hmm. had more users, they had more than one million users per employee. I remember that was the, that was that was kind of a key metric that we were blown away by. They wow. had. 15 employees and 18 million users at the time we invested. So and I remember giving Michael a, Michael Birch a hard time when they end up with more employees. Like they drop below the 1 million users per employee yeah. kind of ratio. Uh, but that that's, you know, that was a WhatsApp, to I think
0: WhatsApp was the winner of that <coughs> game, wasn't it?
1: 20 so, million and like 20 employees or something, yeah, something right? Like so, that, yeah, yeah. So a billion per employee, which is yeah. uh, amazing. I saw um, some interesting
0: stats on Facebook. Uh said yesterday, like pretty much all the social networks they own are almost at a billion in terms of user base. Yeah. It's impressive. So insane, it's amazing. Um, so Bebo ended, um, obviously with a success story for for Benchmark Balderton. And I, I, I say Benchmark Balderton because I remember when they changed their name. And one thing that happened was, um, obviously the Birches have now moved to the valley and they've created a whole ecosystem over there. And you know, hopefully, one day I can sit down with Michael and actually ask him all these questions from from his side of the, the story. but. At that point in time, you also started entertaining this idea of of a fund which effectively became ProFounders. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the transition to ProFounders, what it is, how it's different, what you do today.
1: Sure. Um, So the ethos of ProFounders is to have a value added, to create a differentiated fund that provides what we hope is an inordinate amount of value Mm -hmm. to startup companies. Um, and, And this idea was born out of the The belief that in Europe now we had enough successful entrepreneurs that they could be not only seen as, but actually could be helpful to the next generation. So in San Francisco, what makes it such a uniquely special place in the West Coast is it's had a tradition, the whole pay it forward tradition um, of entrepreneurs when getting, receiving help from successful founders um, and then doing the same themselves when they are successful, investing time and money to support the next generation. And we looked across Europe and we said we now had a sufficiently broad network of successful founders that we could try to replicate that through a venture fund structure. So well, the whole idea behind ProFounders was to leverage one generation of founders to support the next and to be, like I said, what we believe is a hugely helpful venture fund. And um, and, and so what we did is we raised money from some of Europe's most successful founders. So Michael Brent Hoberman from lastminute.com, Karen Hansen from Top Table, Mike Danson, who built data monitors, and others. And the idea is that they contribute their money to the fund, but their time as well. So I always joke when I meet founders, they're not moving into your offices five days a week to make coffee. That is not what the network is about. But it is there to help on tricky situations, to give some thoughts on product. In Michael's case, he's amazing at viral loops, um, to help out how to structure partnerships, to... Um, help us scale the organization, whatever it might be, um, and to just tap into the collective wisdom of a generation of founders that have been successful. Mm. Um, and so so we did that. So we created this venture fund, I mean, I also, what we also wanted to do, CS&I, um, so yes, mm. egos, we don't want egos, we, it's always we, as I mentioned <laughs> from the, in the beginning, what we, <clears throat> excuse me, what we wanted to do also was um we saw that where we could provide the most value is at the relatively early stages of a company's formation. And so we saw an opportunity to invest earlier than most venture funds were doing at the time and support companies through the initial product market fit. So when they're just bringing something uh, out there and they're they're getting initial feedback and they need help on what direction the business should head and uh, understanding whether the metrics make sense or not, uh, that's where we can make an inordinate amount of difference to the company and its potential. And so that's what we've done. So we've been now for the last five years investing in um, 30, kind of close to 30 now, 29, 30, European companies. Um, average check size of around in pounds, 600,000 pounds. So right around a million dollars, 900,000 euros or so. We're not greedy. We co-invest with other venture capital firms all the time. Um, and uh, hopefully if you did a survey of our some of the companies we invested in, they would say we've delivered on the promise that we gave to them. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we, like I said, we... We view ourselves in service business. I think specifically with pro founders, the way I, I would articulate what we want to do is we, we know the founders have scarce resources, money, people, time. We want to help them allocate those scarce resources in the most efficient manner to be able to raise another round of financing. We want to help them. We want to be the person they pick up the phone to, to say, you know, how should I, should I hire this person or this person? Um, should I invest in this marketing channel or this marketing channel? We're not experts in each do, one. Do, do
0: but you do that across like specific sectors of, of interest or is it across all? Uh,
1: sorry, do you mean by vertical or thematically, by yeah. yeah. Do you have
0: themes, fintech, this that, or that, or are you broader, narrower,
1: what do you prefer? Yeah, so we've been, um, right. So I think all venture capitalists will say we're very thematic driven. Here are the areas we find interesting, which is true. And we have, you know, open data initiatives and marketplace models and the power of networks and all this kind of stuff. We also realize uh, entrepreneurs are the smart ones. They tell us what's interesting, so yeah. we tend to go back and then, if we meet an amazing company, we fit it into retrofit, uh, retrofit, we retro, yeah, retrofit and wedge it into something and yeah. say, ah, oh, it's definitely, uh, definitely part of that. Yeah. Um, but but is,
0: there, is there any specific sector that you specifically will gravitate towards over, over, let's say, your partner Rogan? Is there anything that that a founder actually maybe it's a call, it's a call for companies out there. Like, what would you say right you know, now? So. Know? Know?
1: Just, just If you look at the investments we've made, um, because of the involvement, a couple of our investors come from the travel space. Um, we, we have probably an over in the travel sector, if you will. But we're also passionate believers that travel is being disrupted now, uh, mostly through these handheld devices that we carry mm-hmm. with us everywhere. And uh, people people, people always love to travel. They've changed from being tourists to being uh, travelers, as I call them, mm-hmm. but locals, right? And so it's about the experience of of being part of a local culture. And that means staying in an Airbnb, not staying in a mm-hmm. hotel. It means um, uncovering the local restaurants to, mm-hmm. to eat it that are that are local specialties versus mm-hmm. um, the hotel, restaurant or what the concierge recommends. Mm-hmm. Um, it means traveling like a local where you're there, you know, Google Maps and City Mapper and these tools allow you to to be a local and travel the way the locals do. Um, and whether it's the experiences, the food, whatever it might be, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's changing dramatically. Mm-hmm. So Enabling just, all that.
0: So that means that you've now successfully been both a VC in the U.S., a VC in a U.S.-U.K. fund, and a VC in a U.K. fund. And, you know, there's always the discussion around everything from should a founder go straight to the valley to how VC styles vary from geography to geography. And I can't think of a more qualified person to comment on that, considering the three circumstances you've been in.
1: So so it's also been different time points in in the evolution of the European ecosystem so when I was in the u.s from 2000 investing from 2000 2004 let's call it uh, Europe wasn't on the radar at all in any way shape or form um, just didn't wasn't meaningful there were no real companies um, didn't 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 kind of uh, didn't register to US people people mm-hmm. that were sitting in the US uh, obviously people that had traveled abroad saw the the uh, the, you know, the green shoots of an amazing ecosystem uh, from 2005 to like 2009, 10, I was at a, um, in Europe as part of a global network with Benchmark. Um, so they had West Coast, Europe, and Israel as well. Um, and at that time, I would say uh, Europe was beginning to be meaningful, but it was about European companies that came up with the product and then, as quickly as they could got themselves planted into the U.S. Mm-hmm. And part of the Benchmark pitch was – we can get you to the US. We can get you to operations on the ground in San Francisco. I think, and European money would only, US money would only invest into European companies if there were feet on the street in the US. I mean, literally the whole time, sometimes the whole team would move to the yeah. US. And they I mean, would that's build still everything. the case, but yeah. But I think there's, um, there's less and less of that. I and mean, if I, if I look less, at the, um, what I see now about Europe is what's fascinating is Europe is relevant and meaningful. To the U.S. Yep. and you see that every day, where we have you know the, whether you call them the unicorns, the global leaders coming out of Europe, but more importantly, what's how you know it's meaningful to the U.S. is they're investing here. Mm. You know, the West Coast, the East Coast guys are coming over here on a regular basis mm. and investing in European technology companies. Mm. Um, so something's happening here, um, and uh, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think Europe's got some certain sectors where mm. it has some natural advantages. I really believe that. And actually we put out a thought piece probably a year ago on this, but um, pre-web days, right? Europe was always the global leader in a number of segments. Mm. Fashion, London, Paris, Milan. Food, right? I mean, European, Italian food, French food, all this kind of stuff. It was the uh, the global leader in Mm. in cuisine, food. Um, uh, Music, right? All the global leading artists and the music labels were were coming out of Europe. Uh, In the games businesses world, right? The console games, some of the leading companies came out of Europe. Um, The web came, it was based in the West Coast, that's where the venture capital was. They created the early leaders, they still create some of the platform companies. But it's shifted now to the infrastructures in place. It's what you do with that infrastructure and how you create consumer businesses on top of that. And having a heritage, a legacy in a sector Mm -hmm. is meaningful now. So think about Mm -hmm. the the certain certain sectors, the ones that Europe was good at, Mm -hmm. they're good at again. So in fashion, right? Von Privé, that mm-hmm. global leading marketplace a uh, model coming out of France. Mm-hmm. Um, ASOS, gl- global leading fashion company. Uh, Ux, uh, Net, uh, net a um, or uh, more recently Farfetch. Mm-hmm. Those are the lead, global leading fashion companies coming out of Europe. The music sector, right? Outside of Pandora, every global music leading music company is coming out of Europe. Uh, let's start from the news. So Spotify, uh, Shazam, SoundCloud, Songkick, yeah. uh, Deezer. I mean, these are all European companies, yeah. and so I think the ga- game sector, Supercell, Rovio, King.com, um, Supercell Racing, uh, CSR Racing with Natural Motion. Um, these are all European yeah. European companies. So Europe will has those great sectors. I think fintech. I think education are the next two sectors where Europe will create the global leaders.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And that's, and that's kind of in line with what we were observing as well. And there are uh, new sectors that are emerging, like artificial intelligence and um, cybersecurity. Would you reckon that those are strengths in Europe, or is that something more like China and the US would dominate?
1: So, um, so obviously DeepMind, which is acquired by Google, is probably the, the premier AI business out there right, right now. Um, you know, and that lends Sorry, the strengths of Cambridge as a mm. research center, which it's been since 14th century or yeah. so, right? Uh, always a global kind of leader in that sector. Um, you know, I, I, th- I don't know if there's a necessarily an inherent advantage to Europe in those sectors. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean we can't create great companies, but mm. hey, man, Stanford, MIT, there's there's great companies coming out of there as well. Yeah. Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon,
0: <laughs> of course. Actually, ironically, just invest in a company. Uh, it's called Altruist, where the, the they're a CMU alum. So... Very excited to have that in our portfolio. Um, cool. Well we always like to wrap up with a chance for you to plug uh, a cause or a product or um, a service that you really are passionate about and that you think the, the larger community would benefit from hearing about.
1: Right um, Good question. So I am going to um, I'm going to recommend a book that everyone read. Um, and it's, uh, Oh, I'm forgetting the exact name now. I'm going to have to do this right. in real time. Right. This, this is terrible. All right. While you're thinking about that, actually I actually forgot that I
0: had another question I needed to ask you while you're Googling that, which was when we were talking about your Commonwealth days, we talked about the lesson that you had learned there was the role of the CEO of fundraising and about the storytelling and the three components that you mentioned. Now that you've had the, the, Sort of the, the time to sort of have that mature over over a period of time. What have been the biggest mistakes that you have seen founders do at the stage that you're investing in today that can pretty much guarantee that the company is not going to be able to scale up to the next level? Yeah.
1: So, so the same way, there is no silver bullet that solves every company's problems. There is no, um, there's no one mistake founders mm. can make that 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 puts a company into a, a debt spiral or a wrong situation. I, I think. One consistent issue I've seen with, with companies, um, whether it's Europe or the U.S. or everywhere, is that they do a phenomenal job in the early days and they create this beautiful story that I talked about. They craft this amazing story to investors about why they need to raise X million dollars, uh, and they raise it, and um, they they overinvest too quickly uh, because you know things are going well in the early days. They they say, "God, we've got a tax opportunity. We got to hire up twenty people." And they, they go from this kind of very almost lean approach to capital is um, is 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 completely available and will never will never be short on it. And they they overhire and, and I don't want to say every company, but but I see a lot of companies that post the Series A or the Series B, uh, post a, a large fundraising round, come to a little crazy, uh, not a bad way with all good intentions, um, but. I see a lot of, um, you know, there's a six-month period where I think a lot of that scarce resource is wasted. Because, actually, what you did right in the early days was was growing in a very lean manner, every dollar being very careful and allocated in the most efficient manner. And when cash becomes more available, that... Um, very prudent approach goes out the window for a period. So there's an overinvestment in team, an overinvestment in marketing, even though you don't get the immediate return uh, because it'll pay dividends later. So so can
0: I assume from that statement, therefore, that the moment that investors start seeing rounds that get really frothy from a size point of view is the moment we can start thinking about that capital actually being misspent and it's the early indicators of of downturns?
1: I don't want to be that bold. Uh, I I think the way I think about it is... uh, I just want founders to continue to operate with the same mindset post a big round of financing. Mm. Doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in new markets, mm. in new people. Um, but I think we all get a little ahead of ourselves, mm. and uh, you know. And listen, I'm on the board of these companies as well, and and mm. we all collectively allow it to happen. But um, it's it's a matter of taking a deep breath and, uh, and, and you know, not changing the mindset. So does that
0: mean, therefore, that a founder potentially should be raising smaller amounts of capital and are forced into this situation of having to raise more as a way of showing that they have a bigger war chest?
1: No, I think, um, I think what we see is uh, there's a very credible plan and, and because, listen, investors are gonna, they're gonna come to their own conclusion about how much money a business should raise and they're gonna wanna see a credible plan. I think once that comes on board, we probably overshoot that plan from a hiring and investment perspective, mm-hmm. and it's actually about being true to to what the original okay. ethos was. All
0: right, so it's more of a miss, miss um, It's not a misrepresentation. It's more of like it actually deviates from from the plan.
1: Yeah, I think it's um. I don't know if it's overconfidence. Um, it's aggression, which is not a bad thing to have. Yeah, like, like we now. have these
0: three guys that we found that are amazing. We should hire now. Yeah, get a lot more right now. Yeah, we yeah. got.
1: Listen, someone's going to take the opportunity if we don't get into this country. So we got to get there right now. Yeah. And um, it's it's. No, it's positive exuberance. I mean, listen. I, I, on the other hand, I don't want to be the, the the negative guy here because I'm sure Uber's uh you know, had that that philosophy from from day one, and they've been a ph- phenomenal Roadster, uh, yeah. growth story. Yeah, exactly.
0: Cool. What was the book then?
1: Right. So I, I was getting the wording wrong in the exact title. So it comes back a little bit to, to game theory, but it's also um, it's about people management. Um, so I'm a big believer that um, you know every interaction we all have with 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 another person is. Um, uh, is hugely important and uh, and understanding how we interact with people is important. So, the book to read, the author is um, Robert Cialdini, and that's C I A L D I N I. Carlos, you're nodding your head, so you might know this one. Yeah. It's called The Psychology of Persuasion. Um, and it's about actually how consciously and subconsciously we interact with other people and what we say or do can influence others. Um, and, you know, the very simple example it gives is. Um, uh, people reciprocity mm. as an idea if someone does something nice to you you feel obligated to do something for them um it's the same reason when you walk in a grocery store they give you a free sample and then you end up buying whatever food they're selling mm. um because because of reciprocity and, and how that manifests itself in daily life um you know there's other examples around um these i forgot the exact term, terminology but around um giving people a reason to agree with you if mm. you give them a reason so the, the stupid example was um very long line at the photocopier. So this mm-hmm. is a dated book, obviously, of people doing things. And um, uh, someone would they would they would do some psychology tests where people would jump to the front of the queue, the line, and uh, and ask to be able to photocopy first. And uh, by giving any reason, whatever. So they, they tested it first by people saying running up saying, "Oh my God, do you mind if I cut in line? Um, you know, my mother's sick. I need to do this very quickly." And ninety-five percent of people would let them would let them through. Without any excuse, so they just went to the front of the copy li- line, saying, "Can I go ahead of you?" Twenty percent of the time, they were let through. But what was amazing was if uh, the person went to the front of the line and said, "Excuse me, do you mind if I cut in front of you?" Uh, it's only because I'm really busy. It was once again was back up to eighty percent of the time they would let them cut in front of them in the line. Any excuse. And so it was any excuse. It wasn't the validity of the excuse. It was just any excuse needed. And um, there's fascinating anecdotes like that in the book. And it's just it's a really amazing read, even though it's twenty-five years old. So influence the psychology of persuasion. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Sean.
0: And until next time, guys, bye.